All right, I'm here today with Mike Michalowicz. By his 35th birthday, Mike had founded and sold two multi-million dollar companies. Confident that he had the formula to success, he became an angel investor and proceeded to lose his entire fortune. Then he started all over again, driven to find better ways to grow healthy, strong companies. Among other innovative strategies, Mike created the Profit First formula, a way for businesses to ensure profitability from their very next deposit forward. Mike is now running his third million dollar venture. He's a former small business columnist for the Wall Street Journal, a popular keynote speaker on innovative entrepreneurial topics, and he's the author of Profit First, Surge, The Pumpkin Plan, and The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur, which Business Week deemed the entrepreneur's cult classic. Mike, welcome to the show. Colleen, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you, Mike. I'm super excited to talk about how to make any business profitable, standing out from the crowd and the pumpkin plan. But before we do, please take a minute to fill in the gaps from that intro and tell us how did you get started on your journey? Yeah, so I started my entrepreneurial endeavors perhaps how many start unexpectedly. I never planned or dreamed or desired to be an entrepreneur. I just couldn't get a job out of college. Not a good job, not the job I wanted. And one day decided, you know what, I'm going to start my own business. I went in totally blind. I had no understanding or appreciation what it meant to run a business. I thought you just had a vision and you'd start doing it and people buy it. Hmm. But it, it was quite the opposite. It was had a vision, start doing it, find out I have no clue how to do it. I had a lot to learn. I found out no one wanted to buy what I had, especially because I had no experience and and had no contacts and, and had nothing. And just started hitting the pavement and doing anything to survive. And what I found fascinating about that phase of my life in retrospect is that when I commit to something, that it sometimes brings about fear, more fear after the fact. I, I, you know, I was afraid to do it in the beginning. And I said, you know what, I'm just going to do it. And I had a great optimistic vision. But then the real fear set in when I realized how hard it was. But fear also is a great ally because it brings about motivation. I, you know, I have to make this work. I have no alternative choice. So I worked ridiculously hard to get my business and subsequently my other businesses off the ground. And it worked. Perspiration is a great, a great asset for business. Work hard. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But still, you had <laughs> you had all the all those odds against you, and you made it work. What is the secret? What were the first few steps that helped you on this journey? Well, so yeah, I talked about fear. That's a great motivator, and it truly is. And we got to leverage it because mm. fear means I have to make this work. I have no alternative. But it only works for a certain amount of time. It'll get you out of the morning, out, out of bed in the morning early to get started. And they'll have you work into the night because you got to make it work. But at a certain point, fear becomes overwhelming stress. And, and that will compromise you. That could kill you. So fear is a great motivator in the beginning. What I found was, and it took me time to discover this, was that I couldn't be everything to everybody and I couldn't be everywhere. I thought I could. I thought I could sell you know, whoever wanted my service, I could serve them and I could go to all these different events, networking opportunities. I could sell anywhere and find traction. But I quickly came to realize that that's not true, that I had to not be everything for everybody and be everywhere. I actually had to be a few things for a very few select people in a very concentrated area. You know, what I mean by that is. So it's about to be n- niching down. Yeah. <laughs> bingo, clean, yeah. bingo. Yeah. Find the niche. And what that what happened is once I started appreciating the impact a niche has, 
is the perception from the prospects was that they saw me everywhere because I was in the same area all the time. I was communicating to the same group of people. So they believed that I was the authority in that space. That was probably one of the biggest ahas for me in growing my businesses and, and getting momentum. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. What I encounter usually when I talk to, to people is that they are very afraid to select a certain niche because, yeah, they, I, I mean, they're really scared that they'll be missing out <laughs> on all the yes. other stuff that's happening out there. So what would you say yes. to these people? Yeah, so it's funny. I hear that resistance, meaning if I do this, I can't do that. The second thing they say is, what if I pick a niche and it goes away overnight, collapses, yep. right? Mm -hmm. And here's, those are the two most common forms of resistance. So I'll address the first one. What I'm talking about is what I call niche specialization, not niche exclusivity. And those are absolutely two different things. Niche exclusivity means I only do one thing for one group of people and I will decline any other opportunity. Hmm. We can do that, but only once we get to a certain stage of success. What I'm talking about is niche specialization. Focus in on a community with the marketing concentration, the presence, but if other opportunities present themselves because you're great and there's word of mouth, evaluate it. If it's a good financial opportunity, particularly for an early stage business, we can still take it. But my goal with niche specialization means that over 50% of my client base is in a category. Hmm. So we got to distinguish it. And we're talking about niche specialization here, not niche exclusivity. The other part where people say, but what if I pick a niche like the real estate market that collapsed or, or you know, telecom and it falls apart? So, you know, that's a legitimate concern. So what I did is I, I did research and I researched at a hundred industries, old historical industries like the, the horse and buggy industry, which was a legit industry for a period of time, typewriters yep. to modern industry like real estate. And I found that, Colleen, there's never in world history been an instance where an industry went away overnight. I mean, that's the verbiage we use overnight, but really they decline over a period of time. Horse that's and true. buggy yep. talk about it took about 20 years of a decline before the automobile replaced it. Typewriter went on about a 10-year decline. The real estate market dipped and resurged. So what that means is if we specialize in a niche and it starts to decline, we just need to, need to be cognizant of it. If the decline continues, that's our trigger to identify a new, perhaps complementary or replacing niche. And when you niche specialize, I found pretty consistently people see results within six months, maybe a year. But in the big picture, that's not a long period of time. Mm. If a niche collapses over you know, 10 years, that gives you a nine-year head start on that new opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a, that's a wonderful perspective. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it's about niching down, but not becoming exclusive, at least at the early stages of your business. That's right. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's really awesome. All right, Mike, you had founded and sold two multi-million dollar companies, and then you became an angel, uh, an angel investor. Please share a little bit about that experience. Yeah, sure. So I sold two companies in the tech service space. We were providing you know, computer services and technology services. And by the time I sold my second company, I was like, you know, I, I figured this out, man. I, I know how to make a company grow. I know how to make a lot of money for myself. It happens when you exit, meaning when you sell the business, that's when you make your money. And my ego got hold of me. I mean, in a big way, I'm truly ashamed and embarrassed of how I behaved looking back. Just thought that I had figured it out and that wealth was inevitably mine because I knew the formula, pump and dump. 
So what I did is I became an angel investor because I said, now that I know this for my own businesses, I'm going to employ this in countless other companies. I'm just going to invest and make them grow their businesses and I'm going to become super, super rich. But I was blinded by ego. Those businesses I invested in, I had no, I should, I, there was no reason I should be in that space. I didn't understand the space. I didn't have the networks. I didn't know anything. I was just picking random businesses and been putting money into them. And they all collapsed. I mean, literally everyone collapsed. I now call myself the angel of death. Uh, I, was the, I was the worst angel investor ever. And I came to realize, unfortunately, when I had to nearly declare bankruptcy, that I didn't understand how to grow businesses. I had good fortune. I understood some elements, but I didn't have the whole thing put together. So that story of my life, it was extremely painful. I actually went through depression for two years. It was extremely painful. I've learned from it that I don't know much about business and I need to seek out the things I don't know. That actually triggered me to start writing books. So I became an author now 10 years ago because I was seeking solutions for myself and I continue to. And when I find them, I then put them in a book so others can discover them also. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's so cool. I read some of your books and I, I really love them, but we'll get into Thank that you. in a bit. <laughs> You're welcome. Mike, what I want to know is how did you cope during those two years when you experienced depression? So alcohol, and I'm not recommending that by <laughs> any means. I'm embarrassed of it, but I I never really drank much before. I mean, I, listen, I, it's not like I didn't drink, but I didn't drink like this. This became a daily habit. That was actually not an effective tool. It was It made it worse, but in the moment it made it better. And then a friend of mine, Joe Spano, I'll never forget it, turned me on to what really was the coping mechanism, which actually spawned so much. He told me to start writing a journal. And by the way, you know, women call it a diary. Guys try to toughen it up by calling it a journal. It's the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and, uh, you know, and what it was, was I first thought when I heard this concept that I should just write down why I have successes, you know, to, to recognize that I'm making some progress, write down the progress I'm making. And Joe said, no, no, no. The goal of a journal is simply allows you to let things out. It allows you to get it out of your mind because depression and struggle comes from a constant thought. We're stuck in thought. So he said, whatever comes to you, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what the words are. Just write it down. And so I started writing a journal where I would just write literally the nastiest, most angry thoughts I had, the the disappointment in myself. Whatever was I was feeling in the moment, I wrote down my feelings. And it became a form of therapy. After writing it down, I actually felt better. I, I don't know how to explain it. I, I felt like I could. I finally was telling someone a piece of paper, but I at least was letting it out. And then what happened was that journal started turning into a seek, seeking for solutions. So stage one of journaling for me is just let the disgustingness out. Stage two was I noticed I started questioning my own thoughts of the past and, and trying to work on solutions. And for me, stage three is that actually spawned writing books. Hmm. Yeah, journaling is a very powerful tool indeed, and it's extremely therapeutical. I have a background in psychology and psychotherapy, and journaling is an amazing tool that I used dozens of in, in dozens of occasions when I worked with with guys who were struggling with depression after losing a business or maybe yeah. you know, a, a, a tough divorce or things like that. So, yeah, absolutely, I hear you. Yeah. Wildly powerful. I definitely recommend it. And you know what? The funny thing is you don't have to do it when you're struggling. Like you, you can do it anytime. Yeah. It's just 
it, it's a great way to clear your mind. So I do it. I, I wake up every morning and do it. I, I'm not that that form of discipline, but my discipline is when, I, when I'm just not feeling right or, or I feel compulsion to write in a journal, I'll start journaling again. Okay, interesting. I was thinking about the fact that maybe this new habit of journaling helped you transition into becoming an author. Is that correct? Yeah, it did. It did. So kind of like I was saying, I, I started writing down the challenges I had in my own business and trying to figure out the solutions. And then I said to myself, wow, you know, I, I can structure this in a book. And I remember someone a long time ago saying, if you want to affect change in the world, to serve millions, or to, I'm sorry, to make millions, you must serve millions, was what he said. And I said, you know what, there's an opportunity to care for others, and it's also a financial opportunity for me. So I said, I'm going to go for this. It was kind of a dream of mine saying, you know, if, if I had all the money in the world, what would I do? And I'm like, you know, I think I'd become an author. And then I looked at it and said, well, if you have no money in the world, and that's what I had, I had nothing, I said, what, what would I do? Because I could start anywhere, be an author. So it was pretty clear, that's what I was going to do. And that's what I did. Hmm. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the books that you've written and maybe we could uh, dive into The Pumpkin Plan. First. Sure. Okay. How how did that idea come so to So The Pumpkin Plan came about when I was talking with a mentor of mine. His name's Frank Minutolo. And we were talking about business growth. I was trying to grow one of my businesses. This is before that dark period I went through. And he shared an insight, which I subsequently started journaling about and then researched further. And he said, you know, what happens in our business life and reality also happens in nature. And I kind of explained there's so many parallels in nature. And he suggested, you know, go study pumpkin farmers. And not just any pumpkin farmer, but the ones who grow colossal pumpkins. See how they do it, and you may find solutions for how to grow a colossal business. And that's exactly what I did. I, I spent about a year of my life studying the process of colossal pumpkin farming and saw how in parallel it linked to these businesses I was studying that had colossal success. And I wrote down the six or seven things. I can't remember the exact number now, but the, it was six or seven steps that were in parallel. And then in the book, I write down, really, it's the process of how to grow a colossal pumpkin, but specifically how it translates into growing a colossal business, both organically, meaning you don't th you, does it naturally without infusion of capital. You can just do it on your own. <laughs> Have you recently went through a painful separation or divorce? Don't forget that I've made a commitment to serve 100 guys that are currently recovering from a painful breakup. Until September 1st, you have a rare opportunity to experience a free, two-hour, powerful coaching session with me. All you have to do is send me an email at hello at mensjourneytoday.com and we will schedule a call. Again, that's hello at mensjourneytoday.com. Remember... You don't have to do this journey alone. And what is the key takeaway from this book? What is the key takeaway from, yeah, from, from your yes. experience with uh, maybe reviews that you've gotten or speaking with, with yeah, the Yeah, it goes back to focusing and exploiting strengths. So what I found is ordinary pumpkin farmers, they're in the quantity game. They want to grow as many pumpkins as possible. Halloween, at least here in in the States, is the big time of year. They make their money then. And so you need quantity. Colossal farmers, though, focus on quality. And so they are looking at the select few pumpkins that have colossal potential. Well, the translation to business is the ordinary business focuses on quantity. You know, we, can we do more things for more people? And that is a 
ultimately a losing proposition because it caps out the business. You can only stretch your resources so, so thin. You can only grow capabilities so deeply when you're spread out. But what I found when a business does that narrow focus, like colossal pumpkin farmers, that they identify the strengths and they multiply that and they actually ditch the weaknesses. You know, some examples are this. A colossal business will look at its strongest existing clients and say, how do we clone and replicate these clients and get rid of the lower quartile of clients, the lower You know, they'll look at their staff and say, who are my best people? I'm going to, you know, block and tackle for them. I'm going to protect them so they can grow themselves. And the weak employees, unfortunately, they're not going to be a fit for our firm. They're going to flourish hopefully elsewhere, but they're not going to flourish here. The entrepreneur themselves looks at their own strengths. You know, what am I good at? Do more of that. Don't do less of it. Don't try to bone up on things. So, so the lesson from the, the pumpkin plan is focus and exploit your strengths because you can amplify those by miles. But your weaknesses can only be improved by inches. So focus on the strengths and amplify those. And if you can cut out the weaknesses, cut them out. If you can't cut them out, just realize they're never going to be a strength. Get in the ballpark with them, but always exploit your strengths. That's where the growth is. Hmm. That's really great advice. So it's about finding your zone of genius and building from there and avoid at all (laughs) costs doing things that you suck at or maybe even things that you're, yeah, pretty okay at. That's right. That's right. Do I understand? And, you know, we look at our, sometimes we look at our competition and say, but my competition, you know, they have a good X, Y, Z. I need to be good at that too. Listen, you need to be in the ballpark, meaning if your competition has all good websites and yours is the most horrible website ever and, and it offends people or something, yeah, that's going to be a weak point. But if you if you don't understand how to design or market an amazing website, that's okay. What do you do well? Well, maybe in the marketing front, you happen to be a great orator. You're a great presenter. Well, then use that presentation strength. Amplify that. Actually, go to go to school for improv class or, or whatever and find a platform. Maybe it's YouTube. Maybe it's Facebook Live. Maybe it's live presentations themselves. But find a platform to, to do more of that because that's the thing that will differentiate from the market. If you try to compete on what the competition's doing – and it's not your super strength, you're just going to be another average Joe like everyone else. you got to find those elements of yourself and in particular your business and make that your difference by really amplifying it. I love it. <laughs> I really love this. Okay, Mike, I would love to talk, to talk a little bit about Profit First. and Nice. Gap. Now you're talking, my brother. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay. So you have very interesting ideas about starting a business, growing a business. And that's what I like about your books, that they are so innovative. So you're saying that we should take the our profit first, and this will, in, in some way, shape, or form, force us to grow our business. That's right. Is that correct? And I know it sounds like bizarre, because it still sounds a little bit weird to me as you say that. Take take our profit? For an <laughs> you know, I get, I get a couple of responses around that. Some people say, what, are you a money grub? But you mean, like, we have to serve our clients first, then we take our profit. Other people say it's just illogical. Like, you know, everyone knows profit's the bottom line, it's the year end. But here's what I found out, is the old formula, which is sales minus expenses equals profit, is logically accurate, of course. But it is horribly behaviorally flawed, meaning it doesn't work with the natural human nature. And here's what human nature is. When something comes last, 
it means it's insignificant subconsciously. Like if, if I was sick and came out of the hospital and, and the doctor says, you know, you got to start taking care of yourself. I don't say starting today, I'm going to put my health last. I say, no, no, starting today, I'm going to put my sure. health first. What's important is defined as first. What's unimportant is defined as last. So in the traditional formula, we've all been told, we are told that profit is unimportant. It's, it's the last thing. It's insignificant. It can wait. It can wait. And so what happens? It waits mm. and it waits and it waits. And ultimately, a business will go under because of that because it's, it's the kick the can down the road game of profit. But the other thing people say to me is like, well, you know, Mike, if you take your profit first, it sounds like you're not caring for customers. It sounds like you're just a money grub and you're not going to pay your bills. That's not what I'm saying whatsoever. What I'm saying is when we start with the new formula, the profit first formula, which is sales minus profit equals expenses, we do take a predetermined percentage of income as profit. So maybe we say starting today, we're going to take 10%. So $1,000 comes in, we take $100 out for profit, we hide it, and then we must run our business off the remainder, the $900. And what happens is nothing short of miraculous from a behavioral aspect. Now we have $900, we have to find a way to make it work. Maybe we can't pay our existing bills. And here's the rule. If you can't pay your bills, you can't afford your bills, meaning you can't keep doing that. Yes, we'll have to find a way to pay off those vendors. We incur the service. We have to pay them. We're responsible for that. But going forward, we can't keep incurring those bills. So that ain't going to happen anymore. When we take our profit first, we look at our business more prudently, smarter. We look at what money's truly available to run our business. By taking our profit first, we actually reverse engineer profitability. We assure that's going to happen. Absolutely. It's a very different place to come from. But when I heard you first talk about this and then when I read the book, it seemed, I don't know, so natural, so right. I've, I've been experimenting with this myself and I'm, I'm nice, super Colleen. excited. Nice, nice. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm happy you said it feels natural and right because it is designed around human behavior. So if it feels natural and right, that means you're a human being <laughs> like me. <laughs> and here's the great news. I, I just yeah. returned. Just a sec. Sorry, Mike. Either that or both of us are aliens. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's a good point, actually. Maybe we are. You know, I, I just returned from Amsterdam, the Netherlands, a couple of days ago. I'm going to Frankfurt, Germany tomorrow. I've been in Russia. I haven't gotten to many parts of Eastern Europe besides Russia, but I'm traveling around constantly. I'm all over the United States, North America, South America, Central America. And here's what I found. Wherever I go, Humans are humans. And yes, we have different governments. There are different tax and business laws. We speak different languages, but we all speak the language of human behavior. We are all wired the same way. And it's a real simple principle. It's actually called Parkinson's law. There was a theorist who put a label to it. And this is what Parkinson's law states. It's a human nature to consume the resources that are placed in front of us. Meaning if I serve you a, f- a plate of food and there's a heaping amount of food, or if I serve you a plate of food and there's a very small portion, if I serve you a small portion, you'll eat a small portion. If I serve you a very large portion, likely, you may not eat the whole plate, but you'll likely eat more than you would have if I just gave you a small portion. So our consumption adjusts based upon the supply put in front of us. Well, this is true for food. It's true for all resources including or maybe even particularly money. So when I see in my bank account the sales deposits come in and I see that, say, $1,000 in there, my mind expands to say, okay, how can I use this $1,000? I can pay my bills. I can do this. And very quickly, I eat up that $1,000. The simple shift is 
Now, when I serve up the money into my business, I've already taken my profit first. I've hidden it away. And now I have 900 or 700, five, whatever the number is, less money. Say it's $700. Then my mind says, okay, how do I run my business on $700? And we start figuring out ways to run our business typically just as well, if not better, on less money. And because we've taken our profit first, we've assured profitability. Hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And as I said, I've, I am experimenting with this myself and I, I love the results. <laughs> and I know, for a f I know that you also experimented with all this stuff and that's how all of these ideas and books were born. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, no, I've, I've been through it all. So I, you know, I had no idea how to manage money. That's why I wrote Profit First. I didn't understand the true essence of healthy growth. So I wrote The Pumpkin Plan. I, I didn't know how to get started and believe that a lack of resources was actually to your advantage. That's why I wrote The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. And, and it goes, you know, with all the books I've written, I've written others too. It, it all points back to lessons that I needed to learn for myself. And, and I think it's lessons that lots of entrepreneurs need to learn too. Absolutely. Okay, Mike, as we are reaching the, the second part of the show, I want to ask you a few personal questions that will give the audience invaluable pieces of wisdom that will help them on their journey. So are you ready for the fire round? Yeah, lay it on me, my brother. <laughs> All right. Here's the first question. If you were to recommend one book that every man must read, what would it be and why? And this seems like a simple enough question. Well, the difficult part is usually to pick only one book besides your own, obviously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think right now I'm reading a book called Prefluence. It's by Robert Saldini. And, you know, if you ask me this question next week, it'll be a different answer because I love, I love reading books. And so right now it's Prefluence. And it really just talks about how we influence others. It's, it's, you know, it's happening right now. You ask me a question, you're influencing yeah. me to respond. So it's always happening, but we can do it at a much more cognitive level and serve others by, you know, directing others. And Prefluence kind of talks to cool strategies on how to do that. Hmm. Okay. That's one for my list. There you go. <laughs> All right. Here's the second question. What are the first steps that the man who feels stuck in his job or his business can take to break free? What you can do is is take any step. That that's the key. And I su suggest a what they call an irrevocable step. And irre irrevocable means unrewindable. Unre you you can't get out of it. Here's an example. I was working with one of my members. I have a membership organization for accountants and bookkeepers. I was working with one of them just yesterday, and that's a woman. She was facing a fear and said, you know, I, I'm having a tough time marketing to this community. I'm really struggling. And we talked. To it, she really wasn't doing anything whatsoever because she was consumed by fear. So instead of making a bigger, bolder move, we just figured out what's the smallest step we can take, but also that can't be unwound. And what we decided was she was just going to put one post on a Facebook page specific to this community sharing a thought she had. And that's still scared her, but it was small enough. So like, like, what's the worst that could happen? People are going to yell at you. I mean, it's Facebook. There's worst case you get the, your comment gets deleted, but it's not even an ad. You're just su suggesting an idea. But once she put herself out there, she couldn't really remove. I mean, I guess you could delete on Facebook, but, but it was out there. And I think that's the thing now she's making progress. She said, Oh, that wasn't so bad. Now she's taking the next step and that's not so bad. And she's taking the step after hmm. I think the mistake people make is saying, you know, I'm not, I can't stand this anymore, and therefore tomorrow I'm going to do something. And tomorrow comes, and they don't do anything. Or they say, you know, I'm going to write a letter to the boss and tell him how much this job stinks. And they write the letter, and then they tear it up and throw it out. Well, yeah, you wrote the letter, but it's 
it needs to be irrevocable. If you deliver that letter to the boss, now it can't be unwound. So what's the smallest, easiest step you can take that is in the direction you want to go, but also can't be unwound? Hmm. Great advice. I love it. Okay. Mike, may I ask you to share a piece of advice that your father never got to tell you, or maybe he didn't know about being a man in today's world? I'm talking about information or advice that would have changed everything in your adult life. One that you would be sure to share with the future generation. He never said these words, but you know what? As I'm thinking about it, he has implied it by his actions. And maybe, so maybe he has spoken to me. So maybe this is not a fair answer to your question, but the thought that comes to mind is, is be yourself. I mean, fully be yourself because the world is attracted to our uniqueness, not our commonality. That's the uh, bizarre thing. I thought I had to fit in. I thought I'd do everything to be like the other guy. And then what I found out is, no, no, be truly who you are. And that's the attractive component to other people. The people who are like that will say, finally, someone's raised their hand and is waving it. I'm going to go there. So my father never said those words. But no, it's funny, as I'm saying that, he definitely demonstrated that in his actions. He was his own man. Not like a, he, he was a quote unquote regular guy, but he was unabashedly himself. And he made strong decisions in his life that were true to his character that wasn't necessarily consistent with what the, what the common herd was doing. And I think those actions actually helped form me. I'm very proud of that lesson. Hmm. Yeah, that is a powerful lesson. And it's, it generates an amazing effect both in your personal life, attracting the right people, the right partner, maybe the right friends and so on, and also in your professional life. And especially in your business, it's usually the thing that makes businesses stand out, their uniqueness. No question. It makes businesses stand out. But I also think it brings comfort to us, meaning like in my personal life, I'm myself fully. And I know it doesn't connect with everyone. I like to goof around. I like to do dumb things, not harmful or hurtful things, but just I'm a goofy guy. And it doesn't connect with everyone, but I feel very comfortable in my own skin. I feel very comfortable being me and in business too. So like when people visit my website, it's a different website. It, it is Mike being Mike all the way. For business, absolutely. It's helped me stand out. It's helped me attract a community that resonates with that, that likes that. But also my personal life, I just feel really comfortable in my skin. I don't feel I'm pandering to anyone. I'm just just being me. Hmm. Yeah, that's really powerful. Okay, Mike, please share a final piece of advice with the audience. So the final piece of advice is action always beats out learning. Now, listen, I'm a big fan of learning. And sometimes you know nothing and you take an action and that can hurt you. But in the grand scheme of things, as I observed people who successfully achieve what they want. They get whatever it may be, improvements in their life, improvements in their business, improvements in anything, defaulted to action over more knowledge. Meaning there's a certain point that you can learn and you become stagnated in the learning and we start churning in the learning. We just get stuck there. And there's others who say, you know, I've learned enough, I got to go. And if you're at the point saying, I don't know if I should learn more or do, or you take action, that's a call to take action. Do. Start doing stuff. Yeah, absolutely. My personal mantra is one step on the knowledge path has to be accompanied by at least two steps that imply taking action. Mm. Couldn't Agreed. agree more. Agreed. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. All right. Before we say goodbye, please share with us the projects that currently excite you and where can people find you? 
Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to do that. So we talked about my books. Profit First is the one that I'm particularly excited about. It's been translated now, I think, into seven or eight languages, but I don't think it's in Romanian. So check for it in English. You can go to Amazon.com or perhaps the best place to get started is my website, which is MikeMichalowitz.com. Now, I got a great shortcut. It works anywhere in the world. You can type in Mike Motorbike. That's easier to spell. Mike and then Motorbike.com. That was my nickname in high school. It'll go to my website. And if, you, if you're a Google type of person, go to Google and type in Mike and then spacebar Mick, M-I-C. And when it drops down, the long, perhaps Ukrainian or Polish name, I actually don't know the, the lineage, but the longest, <laughs> most Polish name will say, that's me, pick it, Mike Michalowicz, I'll bring it to my site and on my website. First of all, I think you'll find it to be the most unique site you've ever been to. That's my goal. It'll be very different. But also, you can get all the, my books, I have free chapters for all of them, so you can explore it before you buy it. I used to write for the Wall Street Journal. You can get those articles. I'm a blogger. I'm a podcaster. All that stuff is available on my site for free. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Thanks again for joining us today. And I hope to have you again on the Manage Journey Today podcast in the future, Mike. Thank you. Guys, till next time. Take care. Take care.